Obama actually has a grand strategy. He's trying to fit all these pieces together into a coherent whole. Welcome to Foreign Policy. I'm David Rothkopf, CEO and editor, and you're listening to the ER. Calling into the studio from California's FP columnist, Corey Shockey, a research fellow at the Hoover Institution, where she focuses on military history. And joining me in D.C. is Yochi Driesen, FP's managing editor for news and author of The Invisible Front. And a new guest that I'm now pleased to welcome to the show, Derek Chalet, counselor and senior advisor for security and defense policy at the German Marshall Fund. He's also author of the forthcoming book, The Long Game, How Obama Defied Washington and Redefined America's Role in the World, out later this month. Recently, in our tiny podcast studio, high above Washington's DuPont Circle, we had the following conversation. Derek, your book, A Defense of Obama Foreign Policy, Somebody Was Bound to Do It, what came over you? Well, David, first, it's great to be here. Uh, I served for six plus years in the Obama administration at the State Department for two years with Secretary Clinton and then at the White House for a year and a half and then the last two and a half years at the Pentagon where uh, I covered the Middle East, Africa, Europe, and the Western Hemisphere. So I had a modest portfolio. And I... Everything, well, everything's going great. And, and I left behind by the way. A, a string of, of victories. Um, <laughs> I uh, what I wanted to try to do with this book, um, and and as you know, having served in government for the first year at least, when you leave, Corey knows this as well. It's it sort of feels a little bit like therapy, working your way uh, working your way out of what it's you've experienced. Right, it certainly feels healthier. Exactly, exactly. But I I actually when I was reflecting on the debate uh, about Obama's foreign policy, uh, it felt to me that there was something missing. And so what I tried to do with this book is talk a little bit about the strategy that that he's tried to pursue as president, uh, the challenges to that strategy. And, and in the book, I talk about the hardest cases, Syria, Libya, Iraq, Russia, uh, China. and But then also reflect a little bit on the debate in Washington about Obama's foreign policy and the challenges that are inherent in trying to execute a strategy given the nature of the debate here. So the, the title, The Long Game, is, has double meaning because, as I argue in the book, Obama has been trying to play a long game in terms of his strategy uh, and repositioning America's role in the world, both by uh, getting us healthy here at home, but also uh, putting us in a better position abroad. But the book is also a, a an early contention that if, for history and that in history's long game, uh, Obama will be remembered as someone who was hugely consequential for the good. So, Corey, there's a premise that I'm sure you'd like to take a shot. I mean, that you'd like to dive deeper into. <laughs> yes, I uh, would be very interested in the supporting data for that, Derek. What makes you think that that historians 100 years hence will think that President Obama was a brilliant redirection of American foreign policy. So what I try to do is I start by telling the story where it begins, which is what the president inherited in 2008, the way he campaigned in 2007, 2008. Of course, you know, when you look across any any arena in which the United States uh, has an interest, and that includes things here at home, we were by almost every measure a declining power. In January of 2009, when President Obama came into office, we were, of course, shedding 800,000 jobs a month here at home, 
We had entire sectors of the U.S. economy hanging in the balance, the auto industry, the banking industry. Uh, and if you looked at the United States abroad, we were had 160,000 troops deployed in Iraq. We had uh, 20, 30,000 or so deployed in Afghanistan. Many of those troops were on their second, third, fourth, 15-month deployment. Uh, there was a lot of talk here in town about breaking the back of the military. Around the world, whether fair or not, the United States was identified not with hope and optimism, but with militarism, uh, torture, Guantanamo Bay, denial of problems like climate change. Uh, so I think what Obama tried to do at the outset was to arrest that decline and also position the United States around the world and as well as here at home to lead in the 21st century. And, and I think as we are coming to the end of his presidency, uh, I believe we are in a position to lead the 21st century. That, that's now the debate we're seeing unfold on the presidential campaign. You saw both President Obama and Secretary Clinton uh, make that case very clearly in President Obama's speeches at the Air Force Academy and Secretary Clinton's speech out in San Diego, which was a strong, confident reaffirmation of American power, of American exceptionalism, and American strength. Uh, and and both of them sort of looking upon with puzzlement at this sense of decline, fear, lack of confidence that uh, certainly right now has captivated the Republican Party and their leader, Donald Trump. Yachi, listening to this premise, what, what, what questions come to your mind? The, the biggest one is about the Mideast. Uh, I was talking with someone who is traveling there almost continuously and, and having high-level meetings with his counterparts. And what he was saying is that question number one is about Iran and question number two is not Israel, not Iraq, not not Syria, but is what's happening with the U.S.? Mm -hmm. Is the U.S. pulling back? Can mm -hmm. we trust the U.S.? And I wonder how you talk to that. I mean, you, you do hear from the Israelis who now go to Russia all the time to meet with Vladimir Putin. The Saudis, the Gulfies also go to Russia to meet with Putin. Just a lack of trust of this White House, but also a feeling that America under this president doesn't care about the Mideast as much as it once did. And Obama has been sort of open in his comments that he sort of wants us out to a degree. So how would you how do you square those two? There, there's a couple things going on. I think I think first Obama came in and famously said we needed to rebalance American policy. There was a sense that for the previous de decade the United States had been overinvested uh, in terms of time, energy, military resources in the problems of the Middle East at the expense of interests elsewhere, particularly in the Asia Pacific. Now, that's not to say the Middle East matters less or the Middle East doesn't matter at all. And it seems to me there's this myth of U.S. disengagement from the Middle East, myth that is uh, perpetuated in many ways by Obama's political opponents and some of those in the Middle East who have a different set of interests that they would like to try to see the United States pursue. But certainly my experience serving in government uh, in the last six years was very steady U.S. engagement in the Middle East. From a military perspective, we still have nearly 40,000 troops stationed in the Middle East. That's more than we had before 9-11. Uh, we have military partnerships that have only grown deeper in the Middle East, sometimes with, with some controversy surrounding that. There's a lot of folks who wish that President Obama had cut off the military relationship with Egypt, for example, in the wake of all the turmoil we've seen there. And even with a country like Israel, despite the political drama at the highest levels, and there's no doubt there's been a lot of that drama, the security and intelligence relationship has only gotten deeper over the last uh, seven years. The, the problem, what's different, however, is that we don't have 150,000 ground troops in Iraq. And it seems to me we have to ask ourselves if the measure of U.S. engagement is that we have a major ground force uh, 
uh, trying to solve the problems of a particular Middle East country, well, that and that all the other stuff that we are doing militarily, but also diplomatically and economically in the region, is is meaningless. Well, oh, that come on. That to me, though, you know, yeah, come on. But that is such an Obama esque argument. But, so the choice is one hundred and fifty thousand ground troops in some but, stupid war. But David, or how do you, what we're doing now? How do you explain though, the given all that we're doing, just the facts of what the United right. States is doing in the Middle East? How do you explain? this argument that we're pulling back, that we're trying to withdraw from the Middle East. I mean, my my view is if, if we were actually trying to withdraw from the Middle East, well, then I wasted a lot of my time, you know, getting called over to White House meetings from when I was sitting at the Pentagon to talk about all that we were going to be doing in the Middle East. Well, look, I, I'll explain the argument. First of all, we were presented with the opportunity for a sofa in Iraq, which we didn't pick up on because we didn't want to do the sofa in Iraq. Next, we did a speech where we were doubling down in Afghanistan. But at the end of the speech, somebody threw in a line about how we would also be pulling out of Afghanistan, even as we were doubling down. Then we set red lines in Syria, which we didn't follow through on. And wherever the opportunity has come up to lead, even in the case of Libya, where we stepped in, we stepped out way too quickly. We have not been leaderly in Egypt, where we took one side, then we took the other side and flip-flopped around. We have not been leaderly in terms of strengthening the relationships with the moderate Arab states, who all feel alienated. Uh, we have taken a, a more engaged leaderly role in the case of Iran, but we've done so in a way that has actually opened up a lot of capital to flow into a country that since the Iran deal has been continuing to support terrorism through its Hezbollah arm, has been opposing our interests uh, a, a, in places from uh, Yemen to Syria – uh, and is not really showing a whole lot of sign about warming up to the ideas and ideals that we are promoting. I don't think it's a question of the number of troops or the number of dollars or the number of trips of officials. I think it's a question of whether we're perceived by those in the region and those around the world to actually be leading or whether we're moving the food around on the plate. And it seems, you know, to a lot of people like we're moving the food around on the plate. Yeah, so, I guess. I mean, I would just on before stuff. Derek. Corey, go ahead. Yeah. On by saying that the the support corroborating information you provided, Derek, those are all input measures, right? Wouldn't the right metric for judging administration policy be output measures? In which case, Iraq is immeasurably worse than when President Obama took office. Syria is immeasurably worse than Obama than when President Obama took office. Russia's engagement in the region and the re the turning of the kaleidoscope of our political relationships, which it looks to me gained us very little and lost us quite a lot. Those are the right measures, not numbers of troops in the region. I, I want to say one thing before Derek has a chance to respond here. There are few people in the United States government or in the policy community who I am as certain are rising stars as Derek or that I feel are as smart and thoughtful about these issues as Derek. And the reason he's here is because I think he's one of the brightest people in Washington dealing with these issues. And if we're giving you a bit of a rough ride, I just want you to know that it's, you know, out of a heartfelt desire to get to the root of these issues. And it, it was not like an ambush. Oh, yeah, no. David said about, about Derek's superbness. Oh, well, I th thank you. You're all too kind. Wait a minute. Yaki, do you have anything to say about Derek's superbness? No. Just the, the sense of humor, the handsomeness. There's, we could just go on. <laughs> 
<laughs> okay, you got that out of your system. Okay, now we can, we I know. Can go I just back want to you, I don't want you we to can feel go back to the pummeling. That's yeah. okay. Back okay. to the dogfight. Yeah, that's okay. That's good. No, uh, look, this is why I wrote the book because I think we need to have a, a spirited debate about all this, Corey. I think that you know, again, I think you're absolutely right to to let's talk about outputs. And I, I going back to what I started at the beginning, I look at the U.S. around the world, and I look at the U.S. here at home. No question, there are huge challenges that we face, but in every arena that we care about, we are in a better position than we were eight years ago. Uh, Asia Pacific, huge challenges there still, but our alliances are stronger. We have strengthening partnerships with countries like Vietnam that President Obama showed recently with his trip there. Uh, the relationship with India, it's a bipartisan project, which you know Bush did, did quite a bit, but that relationship's gotten better. Japan, South Korea, the same. Uh, look at Africa, where there are tens of thousands of Africans alive today because of what the United States did in response to the Ebola crisis. Remember the Ebola crisis? Remember we were going to quarantine the United States from Ebola spreading around the world? Well, we did a lot to help help stem and solve that crisis. Uh, look at Latin America, where the United States uh, is, was, an, was a pariah in the region eight years ago. And now, for a variety of reasons, among them the opening to Cuba— is once again seen as a leader in a country that everyone wants to work with in the region. In Europe, Europe is beset by huge crises that have nothing to do with the United States, whether it's migration, whether it's the Euro crisis, whether it's Brexit, uh, whether it's the rise of populism. But I would argue the transatlantic relationship is in quite good shape. President Obama is far more popular in European countries today than most European leaders are in their own countries. The one part of the world that is still very difficult, no question about it, is the Middle East. There's a big difference in Iraq. I mean, Iraq is, is than it was eight years ago. Eight years ago, we had 150,000 troops in Iraq. We had 60 or so Americans being brought home uh, every month uh, who had been killed in Iraq and thousands who were injured there monthly. Uh, and one of the premises of Obama's policy is that whereas the United States has a unique role to play and we have in many ways an exceptional role to play in solving in helping the Middle East solve its problems, we can't solve their problems on their on their own on on our own. Uh, we need strong partners. And what's interesting to me again, who we, he systematically undermines. Well, I don't know about that. Systematically undermines some of the largest arms sales in U.S. history have occurred under this administration to Saudi Arabia and UAE. So again, those are input measures. I want to I want to walk around the the globe the way Derek just did. So the relationships with India and Japan and South Korea, I agree, are quite strong. But those are were also quite strong in the previous administration. The Bush administration's nuclear agreement with India was the pivot that allowed the warming of this relationship. It was so actually it, the last major policy initiative we've had towards India. It. It's a major, so the pivot predates the Obama administration. Ditto Vietnam, that relationship had already changed. President Obama is not the first president to engage Vietnam. He's the third American president to have, to have worked on this. Japan and South Korea um, feel to me more uncertain, in part because we have paid so little attention to managing the North Korean nuclear um, progress, but also the reinforcement of America's relationships in Asia are a function less of our own behavior, perhaps, than China's. Although I will grant you that the Trans-Pacific Trade Agreement that the president negotiated is, I think, one of two enormous achievements of the administration. The president deserves a lot of credit for that. 
The United States was not wildly unpopular in Latin America in the Bush administration. I think that's just simply inaccurate. Although I agree the opening in Cuba takes a source of friction off the table. I'm just back from Cuba uh, yesterday. and um, Checking what, out a condo? Is that... <laughs> I was looking at how Bernie Sanders' economic policies. <laughs> oh, nice! Very good. Very nice. Well done. Laying down the well done. Well done. <laughs> and um, Cubans are genuinely mystified that President Obama, who invested so much in this transition relationship, doesn't appear to be lifting a finger to lift the embargo there. So again, we come back to one of the big problems of Obama administration foreign policy, grand gestures without the execution that actually uh, solidifies it. Your description of Iraq, I think, again, is an input measure of American forces in the region and American casualties, as opposed to what were they achieving and what they had achieved by the time this president took office, was an Iraq in which cross-sectarian cooperation was being rewarded by Iraqis in elections and in coalition building. And the administration wrote that off in, in a, because getting out of Iraq was their priority, not solidifying gains in Iraq. Um, so relationships with the Europeans, I don't think they actually are stronger. What European leaders feel, especially the British, is that this is an administration that doesn't set them up to be successful, that isn't worried about their problems, that isn't willing to help put a shoulder to them. Uh, Syria does, the, the refugee crisis in Europe, we say has nothing to do with us, but it has a lot to do with our Iraq and Syria policies. So, so I don't think, um, I don't think the ledger looks as as positive as it does to you. Yucky. You know, one thing I'm curious about, because I know you, you talk about this a bit in the book, is the Syria chemical weapons deal, mm-hmm. about the level of concern about those weapons within the Pentagon kind of in the run-up to the, uh, the red line speech. I'm always curious about luck versus skill. You know, like in foreign policy, does something good happen because of the skill of the person doing it, or, or is it luck and, and vice versa? And I know you talk in the book a bit about how important in your inner mind the deal was to get rid of those weapons. But is that to you luck that we stumbled into a great deal courtesy of the Russians? Or what do you see that as some element of skill in getting to that deal? I think it was both. Uh, and I think like many things in life, sports, foreign policy, it is a combination of luck and skill and being opportunistic when when things change. And the first chapter in the book is, is entitled The Red Line. It's about the Red Line episode. And I it's I talk about it from my perspective of sitting in the Pentagon during that, uh, someone who has spent most of my waking hours worried about the disposition of serious chemical weapons, not just the use of the chemical weapons, but the fact that they might get on the loose uh, and end up in the hands of, at that time, we didn't have ISIS yet, but it was al-Nusra and other extremists. Um, you mean our allies, al-Nusra, now? No. no, okay. no, no. Well, that's okay. That's another, that's, another, that's another comment. But, uh, uh, and that Despite the fact that, as President Obama would admit, we don't win any style points uh, for how the red line episode uh, evolved, uh, we ended up in a with a situation that was unquestionably in our interest. I mean, if we had chemical weapons in Syria today, 1,300 tons, we would be on the ground there. I'm convinced of it because there would be so much hysteria, so much – not, not 1,300 tons of, of CW. We had 10 times more CW – was in Syria than what the CIA wrongly 
assessed was in Iraq. And, you know, this is to me sort of the puzzle of the red line episode. We've, we did, what we ended up happening was something that was unquestionably in our interests. And something, frankly, those of us in the, in the administration, and I plead guilty, this failed in imagination that we could even accomplish something like this, that, that the deal that ended up transpiring was something that was even possible. I mean, the idea that Assad would go from denying he had a CW program to declaring it and then in the midst of a civil war working with an international coalition to get the CW out and destroyed was something I'd never imagined. And what's very telling to me is the, the world leader who's the most thankful and complimentary of President Obama for getting the CW out of Syria is? I'm going to guess it's Assad, but I don't think that's your answer. <laughs> Bibi Netanyahu. But what, you know, what's interesting to me is in, in the, the mammoth Jeff Goldberg piece, I've, which I, if we have time, I want to ask you one other question about Obama kind of without pushback from Jeff sort of takes credit for that deal. He sort of says like, well, you know, we've been talking to Putin about those weapons long before Kerry seemed to just stumble into a deal. At the time, no one in government pushed back at the idea that Kerry had sort of spoken off the cuff yeah. and the Russians bailed him out. Yeah. So the, the idea that Obama, him taking credit for that just struck me as A, just strange, but B, kind of belied by what was said at the time by the people who were involved. The way I guess I read the Goldberg piece a little differently what the president was doing. I mean, it's true that it had been, the idea had been kicked around for a while, but it seemed frankly so outlandish that it was even possible that no one took it particularly seriously until the threat of force brought the opportunity and the Russia threw out this, this safety line to say, we'd be willing to work with you to get the chemical weapons out of Syria. And I think President Obama opportunistically seized it. Uh, I think that that was the right thing to do. Um, again, I was, I was sitting there at the Pentagon planning the strikes, uh, working with our leaders in uniform to uh, think about the targets. And I was also one of the poor souls who spent two weeks of my life up on Capitol Hill trying to make the case to members of Congress from all all different walks that we wanted their authority to conduct the strikes. And I got to tell you, there was not a lot of enthusiasm from any member of Congress. To me, it showed how alone people like John McCain actually are up on the Hill. It also shows, however, the flaw of looking at these issues unidimensionally. You want to defend the red line thing as being an example of Obama foresight. Good luck with that. Uh, you know, well, I, opportunism. I, I, opportunism. I, yeah, right. Yeah. I, I'm, I will, you know, we can bet dinner 10 years, 20, 30 years from now. This will be seen as the signature failure of the Obama administration on almost every level. I'll take the bet. Uh, I, I'm sure you will. Otherwise, you wouldn't have written the book. But, 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 I put in on the bet too, please. Yeah, okay. You can, we, could, we could both be in on this bet. But, but having said that, it's because not only did the president undermine his credibility as a leader – by saying he was going to do something and then not do it. And by the way, by that I mean the red line was crossed 13 times before he even agreed to take action, and then he agreed to take action. He had a secretary of state go out and say he was going to take action, and then without discussing it with the secretary of state, he reversed his As direction. As I said, no style, points. Yeah. no style well, points. Yeah, but I, this is the classic classic way the Obama administration responds to this. Oh, yes, we did, well, there's no style points, as if there were no substance failures here. There are substance failures. Syria is chaotic. Russia has a different place in the region. ISIS has gone in and risen. Assad is strengthened. But the Iranians are strengthened. And we act as though the strengthening of Assad 
which is a direct result of these failures of policy, is not the strengthening of the Iranians, which is not a threat to the Saudis, which doesn't have a consequence in Yemen and Iraq and someplace else, because we tend to disaggregate these things and boil them down too narrowly. It's just like the Iran deal. Doing a deal with the Iranians on nukes, probably a good thing. A good, you know, check mark for the Obama administration. Good sanctions on the one hand, good thing to get this deal. But the consequences of the deal have to be looked at somewhat differently because the primary Iranian threat isn't nuclear. The primary Iranian threat is actually regional strategic. And while we may have reduced for the short term the nuclear threat, the economic consequences of the deal actually increase the risk that Iran poses in terms of its greater threat, which is to the stability of the region, which we negate. We tend to slice these things to suit our arguments and to isolate a success without looking at the broader strategic consequences. Well, David, in many ways, you're helping make one of the big points in the book, which is that Obama actually has a grand strategy. He's trying to fit all these pieces together into a coherent whole. And that if you pick apart any particular thing, whether it's on Syria or whether it's on China. You've got my, it, you've got my interest. You've got my curiosity peaked. Give me three sentences, Obama's grand strategy for the Middle East. I think it is to fight extremists and strengthen our partners and to protect our interests. Clearly. Why do none of our partners feel that? And why are extremists yeah, stronger I, today I think, than they've well, ever been? I think, first of all, ask yourselves, I mean, throughout our history, just because our partners want us to do something doesn't necessarily mean it's in the U.S. interest but to do every it. every single one of our partners in the Middle East has worse relationship with us today than they did at the Obama, beginning of the Obama oh, administration. I, I don't know that that's true. I think there is this sort of – there's this kind of uh, false nostalgia for how well things were in the 2000s with – I'm not uh, nostalgic. I thought Bush was a catastrophe. Sorry, Corey. I thought his policies were awful. Okay? I'm not nostalgic for that. I'm just saying go to the Israelis, go to the Jordanians, go to the Egyptians, go to the Saudis, he, go to the Emiratis. It also depends to- on who you ask, though, David, because if you were to ask Bibi Netanyahu, I, you're right. If you were to ask uh, the former defense minister in Israel, Bogi Yalon, what would he say about the U.S.-Israeli relationship? He would say it's stronger than it's ever been. <laughs> okay. Yucky. You know, I, I think part of it also, and this is the journalist in me, is how much words matter. So I, I think it, it isn't a perception within that region that's just driven by kind of abstract ephemeral policy things as much as, as important as they are. I think it's also driven by Obama giving an interview where he calls out, you know, allies like the Saudis free riders or sort of dismissively says the Saudis and Iranians should just share the region or bashes Bibi whenever he can. And the body language when he speaks of Netanyahu, it's, he looks angrier than when he talks about Putin. He just looks furious and full of hatred. I mean, how much do you think words matter? Well, look, clearly words matter a lot. I would note that in all those instances, it, it takes two to tango. I mean, you know, Prime Minister Netanyahu has not exactly uh, said the nicest things about uh, President Obama. And look, I mean, President Obama, this, is a, this gets to one of the points Corey made that, that I concede is, is true. If, if one of the challenges he's had is that words have mattered so much to him, oftentimes the expectations outpace the reality or what we're actually even prepared to do. One of the things the president did in his first year in office was give a series of speeches around the world to try to reset the image of the United States and put forward a positive policy agenda. Uh, And And he he failed to follow through on every single one of them. No, no, that's not fair. But I think it it is true that that even he would concede now that expectations were wildly uh, high. 
uh, ones that he could he could you know never meet. And I think actually as his presidency went on, he worked hard to try to temper expectations where he could. But I feel like there's uh, you know when he talks about the Mideast in particular, there's like a dismissiveness by him. It isn't just that there's a perception of him disengaging. It's if you're a leader in the Mideast and you hear Obama say of a bedrock ally for all of its flaws, like the Saudis, you know, they're a free rider. Or when you hear him say they should just share the neighborhood with the Iranians, even though the Iranians are meddling in Iraq, Lebanon, you know, indirectly in Israel, Gaza, et cetera. Those are not the words, I think, of a leader who is trying to radiate engagement commitment. They're the, or, the words or, of somebody who's closest aides referring to um, the Israeli leadership as chicken shit probably didn't help things either. Um, Corey, we're coming to the end of this exciting, fun-filled uh, episode of the ER. Uh, do you have a last comment or question? I have two last comments. The first is how wonderful it is of Derek to engage this conversation with us. I think it's an important subject and and you're great to let us have a free fire zone and defend your arguments. Uh, the second is I'm really struck at how difficult it is to make the case on President Obama's behalf. I'm looking forward to reading the book because I, I don't, I don't think the data bears out the argument, and so I'm looking forward to seeing the long play case that Derek makes in the book. Yaki, last word. Um, are you surprised at all that Hillary is running, sort of embracing the Obama record and running with it as tightly as she is? No, not at all. And in fact, I think that's to me proof uh, that. Um, and it is a it is a data point, and it's an output maybe, Corey. That show, and and the fact that also, by the way, that the Republicans have the leader of their party is now someone who's in almost every respect the anti-Obama in terms of uh, his style of leadership, the his alternative reality that he creates for himself, the impulsiveness, and, and I think the the fact that Secretary Clinton, Secretary Clinton, obviously was a co-architect with President Obama uh, for the first four years of his foreign policy. Uh, and and the fact that she's running uh, so close to the Obama uh, policies across the board shows that she believes America's in an in a in a much better place today than it was eight years ago. And for this to continue, it's going to require the same kind of leadership and policy choices. If Donald Trump's elected in November, we're going to have a whole we're, the ER podcast is going to have a have a field day of of interesting things to talk about. No, also particularly from Australia. As, right, as we're phoning in from <laughs> Australia and elsewhere, because. <laughs> You know, we can debate the ups and downs of Obama foreign policy all we want. And in fact, I think you took the sort of past six, seven months of us doing this podcast, you'd say positive on Cuba, positive on the environment, positive on a couple of the moves in China, you know, positive uh, on TPP. You know, there have been some things that have been fairly successful. They counterbalance a critique that we continue to hold to about policy in the Middle East uh, the consequences of that in Europe, uh, the failure to redefine alliances, the failure to lead, the changing role of Russia, the failure to deal with the pivot to Asia as aggressively as possible once Hillary left, and so on. But, but right. you know, <laughs> this is not Donald Trump. <laughs> right, right. Donald Trump right. is a catastrophe from, a, you know, a cartoon horror picture. There is, no, there is nothing about Donald Trump foreign policy that wouldn't be better uh, exceeded by by Obama foreign policy. For that matter, 
you know, Donald Trump makes George W. Bush look like Winston Churchill. Um, you know, he, he makes him look like one of the great statesmen of all time. Uh, Bush had more experience, uh, a better team, more success in the emerging world, uh, Corey Shockey, you know, lots of lots of things going uh, g- going for him. Trump has nothing going for him in any area of foreign policy. You're right. Hillary Clinton's going to embrace some of the Obama foreign policy. She has to. It's a tough road to hoe. Uh, and there's a lot that we ought to talk about in terms of what the next president of the United States ought to do, uh, whether you embrace the critique you've heard in the ER or whether you embrace the defense that occurs in the long game, how Obama defied Washington and redefined America's role in the world in bookstores this month from Derek Chalet, which you are urged and, in fact, obligated to buy. (laughs) But, you know, we will save that discussion for the next episode of the ER. Please join me in thanking Yucky and in thanking Corey, but especially in thanking Derek for coming in here and uh, gamely defending uh, and uh, Obama's foreign policy. And uh, we'll be with you all again sometime real soon. You have been listening to Foreign Policies, the ER podcast. I'm David Rothkoff, and I've been your host. The program is produced by Maria Ori and Ann Kingston. For more information about FP and to subscribe to this and our Global Thinkers podcast, please visit foreignpolicy.com, iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you get podcasts. Thank you very much for joining us.